Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today are your two co-hosts, Caleb Wells. Hey, Caleb, wait, looks like wait. you got power. Am I here? Am I actually in my office with a normal setup? I am. Yeah, we were actually heading to Gulfport to stay with my in-laws for a few days because we've been with my parents for about two weeks. And we got a call from our neighbors. We got power back. And so we changed course and came home and spent the evening cleaning up some and turning the water back on, all the fun stuff. And back at my desk. I love my desk in my chair, in my setup. So it's good to be back. <laughs> you must have been one of the first ones to get power back on in, in New Orleans. Uh, actually, we were one of the last ones in the bowl. Oh. There, there are parts outside that's not between the Mississippi River and Lake Pontchartrain that still don't have power. And they could be, you know, two weeks to three months. But we were one of the last streets in the bowl that you call New Orleans that got power for some reason. So, Well, they were, they were thought it was going to be quite a while before you got power. So they must have been into, done a really good job of getting that back on. Yeah, they, they really did did good with the city. And, and they initially they focused on like hospitals and grocery stores and, you know, first responders and making sure all that stuff worked the first few days. But the transformer coming from, in a, if you haven't seen the news, like some of the towers fell because of Ida coming from the west. What they ended up doing was they they went and pulled power from the east instead of taking all the time to get it back up on the west and then they'll reroute stuff, I guess, as they get more things done. But yeah, we're back. So, Any damage to your house? Uh, limited. Some fence damage and something pile drive my car and put a huge dent in it during the storm. But other than that, we're good. No no roof damage, no water damage. So we're, we're blessed there. And then we got Wai Lu. How are you doing? You doing better than Caleb? Yeah, yeah, no, no natural disasters here. So. <laughs> just quarantine. Yeah, yeah, just uh, quarantine. Getting a bit sick of that now, but um, yeah, the cases aren't going down, so it'll probably last things a little bit longer. Mm. We've got some interesting stuff here in the U.S. Biden, I don't, I don't know he can officially tell everybody they have to get vaccinated, but they basically put out a, a press release and and said you need to get vaccinated and they told companies that if you want funding from us or you work the government in any way shape or form and you have more than 100 people they have to be vaccinated yeah getting that serious now then yeah <laughs> yeah so it's it's gonna be mm. interesting but you know hey maybe some good stuff will come out of it right yeah, yeah well you know i could see both sides of it but you yeah. know we want this thing to be over agreed yeah we'll get, never get rid of it yeah so. we gotta get rid of it otherwise the economy is just gonna just not come back to its full strength. Mm. Anyways, let's talk tech. All right? Yes. Hey, how about our guest today, York Rodenberg. Welcome, York. Hi, how's it going? Hey, good. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. 
You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you do and how you got into uh, .NET development, those kinds of things. Sure. So I'm Joe Rodenberg. I am a software engineer currently at Acronis in Phoenix, Arizona. I first got into the whole .NET world around 2016, I want to say, when I uh, started working for Fujifilm in North Carolina. Um, and they were using C Sharp, and I had not really touched C Sharp before. So I basically came in with a little bit of Python, some Java knowledge, and that clearly wasn't cutting it. So I had to learn C Sharp, and I didn't quite look back since. Well, you're kind of like a newcomer you know, compared to the rest of us. Right, yeah. Myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you obviously know what you're doing. You you stuck with C Sharp. Sure. The right move. Right, and, exactly. Um... It's the only move, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you've you've actually written a book for for Manny. I have, yes, yeah. It's called Code Like a Pro in C Sharp. So if you want to code like a pro in C Sharp, read Code Like a Pro in C Sharp. Is that easy? Just do I it. Mean, Just you do have it. to read the book yeah. for that, right? I'm not going to tell you <laughs> secrets like this. <laughs> so what was it like writing a book? So it's an interesting experience. I'll put it that way. It is not something I really anticipated doing, but the opportunity presented itself, and I said sure why not i severely underestimated the amount of time that goes into writing a book my initial estimate was you know for it's a 400 page book more or less to be done in about six to eight months which the publisher did say that's a bit optimistic and after six to eight months i thought i was done i had written all my chapters had all the code there and then the review process starts and two That's years later. <laughs> right. Basically, yeah. So in the end, it took two years and it finally came out uh, last summer. But it, it's a very interesting experience. Uh, you learn a lot about about writing, really, about how can you best present your ideas, whether they're good or not, to your audience. And it, it definitely has helped me in my day-to-day work as well as far as communication skills go and just documentation even because nobody really wants to write documentation but it does help if you've written a book basically it, it makes it a little bit easier maybe yeah you know i hadn't actually thought of that fact but i can see how that would make a difference right All right the more comfortable you are with writing the easier it comes to you right or the less time you have to to think on it so. right it kind of comes more natural i don't know if it will ever come natural to me but it comes more natural <laughs> Yeah, and th- that's assuming that you're going to write documentation, which th- that is a big assumption, of course. And kind of, kind of follows into this saying, you know, if you want to learn how to how to do something, teach it. So it makes you really kind of get into things a lot more in depth and cover things. So, I mean, can you give us a little high-level overview of what kind of things the book covers? Sure. So the idea behind a book is there's kind of two target personas that it markets itself. Too. So you have the, the C-sharp developer who's developed a C-sharp for maybe a year and is kind of looking at all these C-sharp resources out there. And, you know, we have plenty of books on C-sharp, but mostly they are, you know, start programming one-on-one with C-sharp. This is how you write a full loop. This is what a variable is. Or you've got your C-sharp in depth where it's 800 pages of really dense advanced material that there's nothing in the middle there. So this kind of helps you guide you along to some of the more advanced resources. And then there's the aspect of programmers who are familiar with a different language, preferably an OO language, coming into C Sharp. Like, what are the things you need to know to get quickly up to speed with C Sharp, go like a pro, if you will, without having to go through, oh, this is how I declare an array. This is what an object is. This is what an inheritance is. 
So it kind of skips all those things. So as far as the content goes, it follows a case study of an airline. So you're assumed to be hired at some small airline in the Netherlands, and they have this old legacy system that is full of security holes, full of just bad practices. It's basically one giant file. It's a couple thousand lines long with every piece of code imaginable in it. You're hired to bring that into the 21st century. So it basically goes from using C-sharp to, I believe, to at the time of writing C-sharp, um, 8 was kind of the latest, and then .NET 5 as well. So you kind of get that transformation as well. So at the end of the book, you have a good chunk of code that does represent kind of a vertical slice of an application. The idea was that all the code in this application used in this book are actually in the book versus, you know, some books will have this giant application in it with thousands of files that you really don't see much of the actual code. There's a lot of magic going on. I didn't want to do that. So every piece of code in this app, you will see in the actual book as well so that you somewhat hopefully understand what's going on if I did my job. So it's kind of more targeted towards, would you say like an intermediate or an advanced audience where someone's already kind of proficient in like another programming language and they just want to learn C sharp, I guess. So that'd yeah. be correct? Yeah, that would absolutely be correct. Intermediate, fun figure. I wanted to call it intermediate C-sharp at some point. And then the publisher said, let's not do that. That is a, a horrible title. We're not going to do that. So, But that, that really does kind of cover what I intended to do. Because if you are a programmer that knows Java or something like that, then, well, A, going to C-sharp is the correct choice. I'm not going to argue with that one. But you want to make that journey as easy as possible. And while they are very similar languages in some respects they're also somewhat different so if we can highlight those differences you know kind of call those out in the book a little bit and then move forward that that helps them as well you work for acronis i have some of their applications right when you go to develop do you prefer the web or do you prefer desktop apps so i'm actually mainly a back-end guy so okay. acronis is a very interesting situation because Acronis does not use C sharp. So Acronis is at this point mainly a Golang development shop. They moved from Python a couple of years ago. So I get to use a lot of Golang there. And which which is good even for your C sharp skills because Go has certain things that sound like they are the same as they are in C sharp, but they're not. So you kind of get to contrast and compare and like, yeah, no, I really do prefer C sharp. It, it is better that it's the safe space. So I imagine it took some work to do the C-sharp book on top of focusing on Go in your regular job, right? Because like you said, the differences and C-sharp is the only object-oriented language that, that I know well. Mm-hmm. And so I can imagine having to balance two at the same time would give me headaches. Yes and no. So Go isn't technically really an object-oriented language, so that helps. Uh, conceptually, it, it just operates differently. But I also joined Acronis in the latter stages of writing the book. I was at a company called Brokiva before that, and I did mostly C-sharp there. So that definitely helped. Uh, so I could focus on you know really diving into the one language, r- researching it. Because you know even though you may know X amount of things while starting to write a book on a technology or language, you're going to be doing a lot of research into it because you don't know everything. You, you can't be expected to know everything. So... Yeah. So I find it surprising that like your your publisher um, asked you to write a book about C sharp when you 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 program in GoLang from day to day. Like 
how, how did that happen? How did the whole thing, like, how did you, did you ask them to write a book or did they approach you? Um, how, did, how, how does someone, if someone wanted to write a book, how would they go about it? So, well, when I started the book, I was doing C Sharp day to day. So I'm sure that helped. The way it really came about was I was doing some tech reviews for Manning's books. Um, they have a volunteer program that you can basically enroll in and you get sent every quarter a list of books and projects they have out there and you can apply to be one of the reviewers. So I've been doing that for about two years on like a variety of different things. I think including a C-sharp book, there was some Dart stuff, DSL stuff. After a while, they, they, they must have noticed that my comments may have been more valuable on the C-sharp book than they had been on the other books because I knew a little bit more about it. So I basically got an email saying, hey, would you consider consider writing a book about C-sharp? And I'm like, sure, why not? And then we went through the whole proposal stage, which took about six months of, you know, I first had the proposal of intermediate C-sharp. And my really initial idea was just a survey of the entire C-sharp landscape. Everything.net in one book. It's not feasible. You're going to end up with 20,000 pages. They did not want to publish that, and I really didn't want to write that because uh, I wouldn't be done at this point. So that kind of morphed itself into what it is now, a book for the intermediate programmer that kind of is the bridge between the resources uh, that they have. So yeah, so the proposed state, six months. Then they said, okay, we're going to publish this. Let, let's go ahead and do it. You got to sign an editor and all those cool things, and then you start writing. Uh, they hope that you do a chapter about every two, three weeks. Chapters at Manning are about 20 to 30 pages. So it's a, it's a fair bit of writing, but with decent planning, which is what the proposal stage is for. That should be fine because they ask you to fill in a whole detailed table of contents and like what are the learning points a reader may get from this particular section or you know, do you really need this section? So they kind of scrutinize it that way. So you do have a general outline that you can work from. And then, yeah, the writing, initial writing took about six to eight months. And then they start, in the meantime, they start doing reviews. So the first third of the book you've written, then they release it to their online early access program where people can already buy it and they can provide feedback. And in the meantime, they do those volunteer rounds. So this time I was on the other end of the table and it does give me some appreciation of, oh, maybe don't be so harsh to uh, the people that you're reviewing. Because obviously it, it, it's different when you're on the other end and they assign you some ratings and stuff like that and you iterate on those chapters. And they, they do that at every third of the book. So we have three big review rounds and the publisher judges the feasibility of the book partially based on that. If, if the book is one star across the board, obviously they're going to pull the block. That, that's not going to be something they want to publish. So it, it's in the, it's a benefit thing for both the publisher and for the author because your book is going to get better. And let me tell you, they caught a lot of technical mistakes and a lot of really, really, really dumb technical mistakes on my part. So it, it's very good that they went through with that. It's a real, it's like, it's like a serious pull request. <laughs> Oh, yes. But <laughs> All right. This is a code uh, review like you've never seen before. But yeah. yes, it's uh, tens of pages sometimes per individual reviewer. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned some of the resources in the book. What do you find are the best resources uh, for C-sharp.net? Like the ones you use to write the book and the ones that you suggest to other people? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the, really the big one is just the MZN docs. Uh, they are fantastic. That, that really was the core of the research I had to do. Because really anything you need to know 
you know, not how to apply it, but everything theoretically that you need to know is there. Now, I wouldn't recommend somebody who hasn't ever touched C Sharp or even programmed before, you know, hey, go look at the MSDN docs, come back in two years, and now you're a C Sharp wizard. That's not going to work either. So MSDN docs for somebody who knows somewhat what they're doing. There's a funny thing in the .NET world that there are a lot of beginner resources, and it has been a while since I was a beginner, hopefully depending on what you think of the book. But there are very few really good ones. The The one I used when I started out was, I think it was just called C-Sharp Programming. It was an O'Reilly book. I think my edition was from 2016. And I really liked that. But it was one of those thousand-page books. It was almost a reference book, but I just kind of read through the entire thing and was able to, because I had a job that dealt with C-Sharp, I could apply it immediately. So obviously that won't work if you don't have a software job. And then on the other side of that, I really like, the C Sharp and Depth book. That's a very good book. So I'll typically point people toward that one after reading my book, because that's kind of the, the the road Manning wants to make, right? You have the beginner books and then my book, the intermediate, and then Skeet's book is a Manning book as well. So they want to have that as the advanced book. So taking two years to, to write the book, did you find that there were any like I guess changes to to the language and all that stuff as, as you as you went along? One that, that made made you have to actually change the content of the book? Oh, yes. About one week before I handed in the final draft, a little thing called the .NET 5 beta came out. And I must have not really have been paying too much attention because I was somewhat surprised. But luckily, it's .NET. So everything is basically backwards compatible. That being it's said... Why you place of the word core, I guess? Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that was one of them, right? Just find replace. And luckily, I had some material already in there that, you know, oh, .NET 5 is coming. This is what they want to do because it is a bit of a change. But the, the code still ran. But there were some changes that were introduced in .NET 5 that we kind of didn't change the code for. And mainly that was also some of the reviewers pointed out that, you know, what you have now is totally fine and totally legit. But last week, something else was introduced in the beta. Maybe you should use that now. It's like, well, okay, well, I couldn't really do it in the meantime, but sure, let's do it now. Like I think the JSON parsing stuff, they, they don't really use Newtonsoft anymore. Th- those kind of things. Web hosts kind of changed. So it was very small things in general. And obviously, you're actually running on .NET 5 was a nice thing. And from a marketing perspective there as well, I think we are one of the first books that are actually on .NET 5, which is a nice coincidence at that point. So... Yeah, there were changes, but no, nothing like I had to rewrite the entire book. I've heard horror stories of authors where a language version, a minor language version came out and nothing would compile anymore and they had to completely scratch the entire book. And luckily, I did not have to do that. I would have gone absolutely insane. So I think I think everybody wants to know, how do you get paid? Are you going to get rich? Is it, is it just commission or... <laughs> wait, is it, wait, I get paid? That, that's, yeah. that's news to me. Um, I'll put it this way. If you want to get rich, don't write a technical book. I don't know how many technical books you've seen on the New York Times bestseller list, but, but I think it's zero, absolutely zero. Technical books, it's not like fiction. It's not going to sell like that, but you don't do it for the money. That, that would be a losing battle. Luckily, I knew this up front because obviously I did my research, but yeah, I, I wish I, I would get rich from this. Unless you want to buy 5 million copies, I can help you with that. So is it is it commission-based or is it just upfront fees or... It's a standard book contract where you get you get an advance, which is against future sales, right? So you get an advance of X amount of money, and then you start paying that out. So that is 10% of your normal book sales, typically. So you get that royalty, and then once your advance is earned out, then you get 
the royalty kicks back in and then you get that. There's some other like strange things with foreign sales and like O'Reilly, their digital platform works differently. I, I don't really know how differently. It just says in the contract, they work differently. And then you get quarterly statements. So every quarter, I think past two quarters that the book is released, then you start getting quarterly payments of whatever is due to you. And they do the the gap there because if a book doesn't sell and it is on the shelf in a bookstore, bookstores will just send it back and it doesn't count as being sold. So they kind of have a buffer there that they, they want to see how it operates in the first two quarters, which is really when you're going, going to get the most sales for a book like this. And then they can kind of go from there. You might be able to there afford a cup of coffees or something like that. <laughs> Maybe Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know about Starbucks. <laughs> Just Duncan now. But just, but go, just Duncan. <laughs> yeah, I really should know. I live right next to one. I go all the time. <laughs> Would you suggest to other developers to write a book? Yes and no. It's going to depend on the person. If you are somebody with a lot of free time and who likes sitting behind a screen and typing, which is going to be most developers, then sure, you, you can do it. Do realize what you're getting yourself into. Like I said before, don't do it for the money. There's no money. Do it for, you know, if you want to learn more about the language and you have a certain base level of expertise in it and you feel like you can teach it or maybe you have a different angle. Yes, absolutely. Go for it. Explore that option. If you think of it as something that, oh, I'm just going to write a book. I'll be done in a month. Neither, I know this language inside out. It, it's unlikely to happen. Of course, there's exceptions, but it, I, I believe the standard turnaround for a book is about a year, year and a half at least at Manning, at least. And that's about the 400-page book ranges, which is typically what they're looking for. They don't want to publish the, the big ones because nobody really wants to read the big ones. And I had to reel in my inner Stephen King there a little bit and go shorter. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump in here and let you know about something that I'm doing. It's free. It's out there just to help you get answers to your questions about the things that you're running into with your career. So if you have questions about how to get further ahead in your career, how to start a podcast, how to get a better job, how to get a raise, how to deal with a situation at work with your boss, or just maybe you're stuck and you don't know where to go next. You know, how do I get from junior to senior, senior to whatever's next? How do I become a speaker? How do I get to the next level? That's what I'm out here to do. So every Wednesday at 12 o'clock Mountain Time, I'm going to be doing a call and it's going to be free, totally free. Go to devchat.tv slash level up and you can register for the call. It's using Zoom's webinar software. So it's pretty straightforward. And what we're going to be doing is I'll do 10 minutes and I'll just show you how I do some form of how I level up. And then We'll just answer questions. And it's not going to be a question and answer like, hey, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And then I say Rocky Road or whatever, right? Instead, what we're looking for is more along the lines of, yeah, I have this situation. How do I handle it? I'm trying to figure this thing out. How do I figure it out? I'm trying to stay current. How do I stay current? And if you have any of those kinds of questions, I'll bring you on the call. We'll ask some deeper questions. We'll make sure we get you a solid answer. And I'm really looking forward to helping some people out. There will be no sales, no selling, no nothing on these calls. It is literally just 10 minutes of training and then Q&A. So you can go check it out at devchat.tv slash level up. I'd be too scared that like, because like a year and a half, two years, like I do a lot of like side projects for that. Most of them don't succeed because just 
six months down the track or even just a few months down the track, I'm just like, you know what? I must be bored of this project. Like, yes. I'd imagine, like, although it sounds like you guys got a contract, but do people ever just give up? Like, do they just like write for six months and then go, no, actually, no, I'm actually not interested in this at all kind of thing? Yeah, it happens. So obviously the publisher knows this and they are not dumb and they have in the contract that if you give up, uh, you're going to have to pay back your advance. So it's going to, it's not going to cost you money, but you have to pay back what they already gave you and you lost all that time. And they also own the rights to everything you've already done so that they can find somebody else to finish it. More often than not, if people run into trouble like that, when they kind of want to give up, which there will be a point, regardless of who you are, that you're going to want to throw the book out the window. There will be that point multiple times. But there's always the chance or the opportunity for the publisher to put like a co-author on there or something like that. And if there's legitimate reasons why you know you, ha- you can't hit a certain deadline, they'll work with you. It's not like they'll throw you in prison or something if you miss your deadline by a day. They're, they're very reasonable. You going to write another book? So I've had that question from... My publisher and some other publishers now, and my standard answer is not at this time. It takes a lot. And I'm sure at some point, maybe not right now, I don't have two years to spare right now. There, there's some other things that I'd probably do before that. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't regret writing the book or anything. I would do it again. But now that I know what it actually involves, I, I may hesitate a little bit more to just on a whim from an email take on a project like that. That there would have to be some more consideration onto accepting something like that than what I did with this book where it was literally from one second to the next. Yeah, sure. Why not? Sounds fun. It's honestly one of those things I'm curious about, but I don't have the time. I have a five-year-old. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we had Chris Sainty on the show a little while back and he's doing many book on Blazer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were talking about it and he, he said a number of the same things as you, right? The, the review process is intense, but it makes the, the book better in the end. But um, he also has a full-time job and a blog and a newborn. And I was like, man, how, how are you pulling this off? And he's like, wow, uh, you got me. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so. impressive. See, I, I had to log that. My wife works a, worked a night schedule at a time. So I had free time. I just stopped playing as much video games. I stopped reading as much. And I just kind of focused on that. I'll tell you that I'm very happy that he's writing the Blazor book because in my intermediate C-sharp proposal days, I was also going to include Blazor. This was at a time where Blazor was announced but not available. Uh, so I knew absolutely nothing about Blazor. But I'm like, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll throw that in there. You know, it should be easy. Blazor came out and I, I tried it and you know, it works, but I, I am not a front-end guy. That is not not something I'm very good at. And even full stack, it's like, oh, you're getting into danger territory here. So we somewhat decided to uh, maybe not include Blazor in th- this particular book. And then the, the book's purpose kind of morphed anyway. But And then the, some of the Blazor books were announced, which is nice. I think writing a book on Blazor would be pretty hard because of the moving target. It's a new framework and right. amount of things that change. So I'm guessing over two years, a lot of it would have changed. Um, exactly yeah and that that's going to be one of those scenarios where you know if the .NET community decides that they want to just kill blazer overnight wouldn't be overnight but now you're stuck with what 200 pages of a book that nobody's going to buy that mining is not going to publish that right please please don't kill blazer right it's a great (laughs) idea but right (laughs) my a big part of my job revolves around blazer now (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I love the idea of Blazor. I think of it as Microsoft's attempt to kill JavaScript. So, and that's good. Well, you know, in, in, uh, right. It won't ever kill JavaScript because JavaScript sure. can't die. It's a zombie. Right. It's not going right. anywhere. But I do like the different approach that Blazor has. And we talked about this previously, right? One of the benefits of moving to Blazor is you can bring in developers who have a strong C-sharp focus. And they don't have to worry about learning Angular or knowing a lot of JavaScript, mm-hmm. right? So when it comes to C-sharp, because right, you said you're a backing guy pretty much all the way. What is your favorite part of the language or favorite piece of code to write for a backend system? Well, those are really two separate questions, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm saying like, do I have a favorite part of a language that I have never been asked that before? Huh. Like, I, I like, I, I always like writing my for loops that rely on polymorphism. Like, it, it's very basic, but I, I, that gives me great enjoyment <laughs> using generics and stuff, those kind of things. I, I like doing that. It's not really specific necessarily to C Sharp, although the way they do it obviously is it, it's its own. So, yeah, I, I guess that part of the language, as far as what I like writing best for backend systems, I mean, that kind of changes with what I do day to day, because there's really not much I don't like about writing backend systems, um, unless it's DevOps, which I do not like. Right now, I deal a lot with distributed systems and research into leadership election and those kind of things, which that's fun. And then seeing how to implement those kind of things. How do we do distributed locking and fun stuff like that, that is typically way above my head since I don't have a PhD. My boss also writes uh, books. He writes books on uh, the C-sharp language. So I mean, he always talks about just how much work it takes. But luckily, with the language there, he just has to you know make updates because he originally has right. the original version done and he just has to write updates. Even now, lately, the update's been changing so fast that he's actually skipping a language version on his books just because right. you know it takes that little while to make the updates and then the new version and then He's trying to get the book published with the new version and then they make the new version of the language and it's like, okay, hold on. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. They've sped up. Like I think we're on C-sharp 10 now. Like that's a lot of movement in two years, basically. It's almost like we're getting into Java numbers now. Of course, it's it's easier to follow because there's not multiple active at the same time. But yeah, no, I, I, I can't imagine doing that. I was a tech reviewer on... Bruce Johnson's latest book on Visual Studio, which that was Visual Studio 2019. And I'm glad that they don't put those out every year because I, I can only imagine. Um, luckily, those books aren't massive. But yeah, I'm sure I, I can't imagine writing a book for every C-sharp version. But I assume he does major versions, not every minor versions too. But Yeah, it's all major, yeah. major versions. Right. Yeah. Right. Essential C-sharp is the book that he wrote. Oh, gotcha. Yep, yeah. So is is your book geared toward a, a certain version that you need to start at for C sharp or is it just gen- generic? It, it's generic. Uh, .NET five would be the the starting point. Yeah, it, I didn't want to tie it to a specific version number because there really isn't a need to tie it to a specific version number because it's not necessarily a book about C sharp eight or .NET five alone. It it is a book that deals with concepts that you can apply for C sharp. That, that are how, you know, idiomatic C-sharp works. But idiomatic C-sharp doesn't necessarily change, hopefully, 
all that much from version to version. Like you may get new functionality, like records or the interpolated constants that are coming out now. So stuff like that that may help you with the new things, but the, the core remains the same. And like so the start of the book deals with an older .NET version. So you get to see what .NET and C Sharp was in the old days. And it compared to now, there, there is a change, but the core of the language remains the same. I think that's a good idea if you're targeting more intermediate users and um, readers anyway, just because I think like a lot of the specific, you can just look it up when, when you actually, I guess, start the program, but it's just getting those, understanding those core concepts, you know, getting them down pat. That's, that's really important, really. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, it to me, it always helps to like almost have a curriculum, maybe like have a bit of a learning path because the internet is a big place. You can find whatever you want, but if I don't know what to look for, I am never going to find it. So, and that's really, if you go, if you are a C-sharp developer, like with a year of experience and you want to go really dive into the language and become an expert in it, where do you start? There, there's so many topics and a lot of the advanced resources assume knowledge that are not taught in beginner resources. So th- there's that gap. And hopefully this book helps a little bit that I can't cover everything, but at least it should give you a little bit more of a platform to go to maybe Jeffrey Richter's books or John Skate's books and those kind of things, or Essential C Sharp, really. So what are the things you want us to kind of go about? I'm, I'm pausing here for a little bit. Mm-hmm. So what kind of things you, else do you want to cover? I, think, I mean, the main things were writing the book and what does it look like and those kind of things. I don't know if this is necessarily like, oh, we need to talk about this or Manning is going to get angry. There's no, <laughs> I didn't get any marching orders from that perspective. So uh, yeah, I don't have anything specific beyond what we already covered. Do you want to talk about like, your favorite chapter? Would, would that work? Or sure. Not? Yeah, that would work. Yeah. yeah. Just me. Do you want me to just launch into it? Do you want to ask a question? How do you well, want to do well, it? Maybe we'll, one of us can ask. <laughs> oh, does Caleb, did you want to? No, I was going to say, well, well, Sean will restart it in the chat. Yeah. So then we can do your favorite chapter and, sure. and ask, you know, if there's anything else. If yeah. there isn't, then we'll go into picks. Does that sure. sound good, guys? Okay. okay. So, uh, talking about your book, what's your favorite chapter? So, I have a chapter in mind. I'm trying to remember if it is chapter six, seven, or eight, because eight of chapters just blur together at a certain point after two years. Chapters have been cut, so the numbers kind of you know, switch around in my mind. But there's a piece uh, of the book that talks about equality. And I was kind of thinking, how can I teach what equality in the code is? in a fun yet somewhat maybe obnoxious way. So I went with using a story from... It's a folk story from where I'm from. It's Frisia in the Netherlands. It's an area with the Frisian people. And they have a story about a shibboleth where this war hero would come up to the assailants and basically ask them uh, butter butter bread or green cheese. If you can't say that, you're not a real Frisian, but in in the Frisian language. It's a rhyme and People who don't speak that language can't say that. So I use that to tie it to testing for equality for Frisian people. So it, it's it's a stretch, but the publisher let me get away with it, which is a lot of fun. I was able to put in like a little painting of the guy. So it, there's that. Not a lot of tech books have that. And in the same chapter, I believe it's the same chapter, there is a little discourse on testing because the, the book does deal a fair amount with uh, test-driven development, or TDD Lite is what I call it. It's not real test-driven development. You know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but it's more applicable, more application-driven. There's I, there's a little like a Greek Sophocles 
little dialogue on testing back and forth that I got a kick out of writing and that didn't cut it. The, the editor liked it. So we're, we're good there. It, it's always you know a little bit dangerous when you fear of the, the beaten path there. Uh, people don't expect those things in tech books, but yeah, they're, they're there. I feel like writing a, well, reading a tech book, you'd, I'd appreciate the author adding a bit of extra mm-hmm. wackiness, a bit of humor in there. So. But I would agree with you. I'll say that not all reviewers agreed with you, <laughs> but luckily the publisher did. And I, I think it's definitely for the better that it's in there. It is a little bit different. It, it kind of breaks up the monotony of a tech book because they can get monotonous regardless of how, how well they're written, you know, how interesting the topic is. It's still a nonfiction tech book. It's not the latest thriller that you're not always going to want to read that. So it kind of helps. Here's, here's an idea. A fictional tech book. A fictional. <laughs> Let's <laughs> see. I mean, really, and, <laughs> any, any book written for Python is fictional in my opinion. But... <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah, you could you could write the book around a hidden language <laughs> that if you learn it, you gain control of the universe. Ooh. Right? That's good. Some, yeah. Hey, so, you know. I mean, I thought about jokingly <laughs> writing a book about the language white space. That, that would be funny. It would just be a book full of blank pages, but it would still compile. <laughs> I love it. That's good. That's good. If you read it backwards, there's a hidden message. Right. <laughs> All right, guys. I think that pretty much covers uh, what we were going to go over today. Are you guys ready for picks? I think we are. Sure. I'm always ready for picks. I love your picks. You guys have <laughs> awesome picks. Yeah. Hey, folks, it's Charles Maxwood, and I just wanted to jump on real quick and let you know that I am putting together a podcasting course. I get asked all the time. I've been coaching people for the last six months. How do you start a podcast? How do you put it together? What do I need in order to get it going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, I've put together the curriculum. And I did it through coaching a whole bunch of people. And now I want to share it with you. You can go check out the course. It's actually going to be a masterclass. It's going to be a four-week masterclass where I actually walk you through the entire process of launching a terrific-sounding podcast and putting together content that people want to listen to. And you can find it at podcastbootcamp.io. All right. So I, I think it's been a while since I've gone first, I think. So I'll go first. And I picked up this little Bluetooth speaker that I could take out to like on the park or playing softball or things like that. And it's got really nice sound. It's actually made by Bose. And it's it's not really kind of what I would say a Bose price. It's actually affordable. It's called the SoundLink Color Bluetooth Speaker 2. And decent sound. It's waterproof. So you can take out, don't worry about the rain or anything like that. Hooks up to your phone, laptop, whatever, and uh, play your tunes wherever you're at. So we're rocking out the uh, the dugout when we're playing softball. So it's kind of cool. Very nice. All right. And it's yours. So you get to pick the music. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm also <laughs> the manager of the team. So I get to pick the music. Good. So what do you dictate your players listen to? Uh, mostly 80s. All right. <laughs> 80s rock and things like that. Top 40, things around that age. Right. 80s, early 90s, things like that. Yep. All right. Uh, why? What's your pick? Yeah. So this week, I just wanted. Yeah, my pick would just be um, just the latest TV show that I've kind of binge watched. It's called Dead to Me. It stars uh, Christina Applegate. So it's on Netflix. It's it's kind of like one of those shows where like which I don't want to give too much away because it's kind of like it's kind of like a mystery, I guess. But yes, it's it's about 
Michael Murder type show. And yeah, every week, it's kind of one of those things where there's like a bit of a cliffhanger. So, yeah, it's a pretty fun show. You sure you didn't want to spoil it for everyone here that listens? <laughs> <laughs> if he did, he'd be dead to me. Oh, well, there you <laughs> wow. go. It's good, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Uh-huh. All right, Caleb, what's your pick? So, for those of you who don't live in the U.S., you may not know this or may not care, but the NFL season has started and i am very happy because i like my nfl and uh, my pick is actually fantasy football which if you haven't drafted it may be a little late at this point but it's a fun what's the word not detour but distraction right and and i'm in a couple of leagues with some friends and we get to talk trash and it adds an extra little extra spice to the game so yep that is that is my pick I watched the uh, season opener last last night. It was a good yep. game, but I wanted both teams to lose. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I'm not a fan of. Well, I've never really been a big fan of Tom Brady, but when he came to the Buccaneers and ruined Drew Brees' last season because they beat us in the playoffs, so yeah, I, I, you know, I have some hard feelings there. <laughs> as, an, as an Australian, I still get I still don't really understand how NFL works. It seems like they they play for like. 30 seconds and then they spend like five minutes just having a talk about what the next play is. See, Mac Gripe is just that you call it football. It, it's not It's not the real true football. There's only one true sport in the world and it's football. Yeah. Right. Well, that's well, that's that's why it's American football, right? right. Uh, or, yeah. or the NFL, right? <laughs> if you want to see a fast football game see if you can pull up one for Ole Miss football they're they're my wife's alma mater they're my favorite college team and they do a hurry up offense so they're doing like a series or you know every 15 seconds they're like on hyperdrive so but I find I find soccer or the what the rest of the world calls football to be slow to me so <laughs> <laughs> at least it's over a lot quicker why might might have been talking about Australian rules football? So that's a little yeah. different too. AFL, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. That's um, yeah. I, I like I like that, but that's probably because I grew up in Australia and I understand the rules. Otherwise, it might just look like they call it like what, aerial ping pong, right? They just keep <laughs> kicking the ball. Just <laughs> <laughs> guys playing in the mud. It looks like. <laughs> All right, York. What's your pick? All right, let's see. So last week I was kind of looking through my. Uh, my Steam backlog, I was looking for a new video game to play, and I, I didn't really want to commit to something big, so I just kind of clicked through it, and I realized I had never played uh, The Last Door, so I got that from a Humble Bundle oh, long, long time ago. I think it's from 2015 or something like that, and so I launched that. I looked up how long it was. It was a couple of hours, and it's this weird, low-graphic indie adventure game. I love the you know the point-and-click adventure games, so that was really great. It's kind of like a murder mystery, almost conspiracy thing there's a raven involved it's set in england it, it had all the all the right boxes for me so i highly enjoyed that you know you said humble bundle and you made me think of the good old days because it's dead now <laughs> right i mean the stuff they put out is junk these days it, it's not three or four best. years ago it was great I, so. although they did just relaunch their um i think it's humongous entertainment box with but but and pajama mm-hmm. sam and spy fox and that is my childhood jam right there so if you ever want to have children's point-and-click adventure games that that that's the one to go for and ben stiller is actually the voice of one of them freddie fish so there you go it's the late cool. 90s there you go very cool all right york if our listeners have questions and they want to reach out to you how what's the best way to get in touch always feel free to add me on linkedin 
just yordronberg. There really is only one. So that makes it really easy. And otherwise, uh, yordronberg.com, all my info is on there. Shoot me a message through there. Let's connect. All right. And that's Yort with a J. Yes. J-O-R-T, Rodenberg. Yes. All right, cool. And if our listeners want to reach out to the show, we'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know what we can do to improve. And they reach me at Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. Dun, 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 dun. I wanted to make y'all wait for it. Just a second. I couldn't help myself. And I'm Caleb Wells Coates. But Twitter, Sean, anyway, he's he's more social than I am. So, <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks, George, for coming on the show. Glad to Thank have you. you here. Thank you for having me. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all. See ya. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.